Lesson 5 for July 22 through to 28, Old Testament Faith. Sabbath afternoon, July 22. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the writings of Paul, particularly the book of Galatians. And as we dig deeper this week, as we see what you have for us, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. We pray that the words that are on the page will come to life in our hearts, that we may know Jesus as our Saviour and be able to accept him as such and give our lives to him. We pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Let's read that again, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. A little boy had made a little boat, all painted and fixed up beautifully. One day, someone stole his boat and he was distressed. In passing a pawn shop one day, he saw his boat. Happily, he ran into the pawnbroker and said, "'That is my little boat.' "'No,' said the pawnbroker. "'It is mine, for I bought it.' "'Yes,' said the boy. "'But it is mine, for I made it.' "'Well,' said the pawnbroker, "'if you will pay me two dollars, you can have it.' That was a lot of money for a boy who did not have a penny. Anyway, he resolved to have it, so he cut grass, did chores of all kinds, and soon had his money. He ran down to the shop and said, I want my boat. He paid the money and received his boat. He took the boat up in his arms and hugged and kissed it and said, You dear little boat, I love you. You are mine. You are twice mine. I made you and now I have bought you. So it is with us. We are, in a sense, twice the Lord's. He created us and we got into the devil's pawn shop. Then Jesus came and bought us at an awful cost, not silver and gold, but his precious blood. We are the Lord's by creation and by redemption. And that comes from William Moses Tidwell's book, Pointed Illustrations, page 97. Sunday, July 23, The Foolish Galatians Question. Read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Summarise what Paul is saying to the Galatians. In what sense could we be in danger of falling into the same spiritual pitfall of starting outright and then falling into legalism? Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. O foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, 
He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Several modern translations have tried to capture the sense of Paul's words in verse 1 about the foolish Galatians. The actual word Paul uses in Greek is even stronger than that. The word is anatai, and it comes from the word for mind, nous. Literally, it means mindless. The Galatians were not thinking. Paul, though, does not stop there. He says that because they are acting so foolishly, he wonders if some magician has cast a spell on them. Who has bewitched you? He said in verse 1. His choice of words here may even suggest that the ultimate source behind their condition is the devil, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What baffles Paul so much about the Galatians' apostasy on the gospel is that they knew salvation was rooted in the cross of Christ. It was not something that they could have missed. The word translated portrayed or set forth in Galatians 3 verse 1 literally means placarded or painted. It was used to describe all public proclamations. Paul is saying that the cross was such a central part of his preaching that the Galatians had, in fact, seen in their mind's eye Christ crucified, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, and in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In a sense, he's saying that by their actions they are turning away from the cross. Paul then contrasts the current experience of the Galatians with how they first came to faith in Christ. He does this by asking them some rhetorical questions. How did they receive the Spirit? Or how did they first become Christians? And from a slightly different perspective, why did God give the Spirit? Was it because they did something to earn it? Certainly not. Instead, it was because they believed the good news of what Christ already had done for them. Having begun so well, what would make them think that now they had to rely upon their own behaviour? And so, to finish today, how often, if ever, do you find yourself thinking, I'm doing pretty well, I'm a pretty solid Christian, I don't do this and I don't do that. And then, even subtly, thinking you're somehow good enough to be saved. What's wrong with that picture? Monday, July 24, Grounded in Scripture.
So far, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul has defended his gospel of justification by faith by appealing to the agreement reached with the apostles in Jerusalem. We read about that in Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10, and to the personal experience of the Galatians themselves, which we read yesterday in Galatians 3, 1 to 5. Beginning in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul now turns to the testimony of Scripture for the final and ultimate confirmation of his gospel. In fact, Galatians 3 verse 6 right through to 4.31 is made up of progressive arguments rooted in Scripture. Question. What does Paul mean when he writes about the Scripture in Galatians 3 verses 6 through to 8? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. And we're going to consider also Romans 1-2 which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And Romans 4, verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. It is important to remember that at the time Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, there was no New Testament. Paul was the earliest New Testament writer. The Gospel of Mark is probably the earliest of the four Gospels, but it likely was not written until around the time of Paul's death, in about AD 65. That is, about 15 years after Paul's letter to the Galatians. So, when Paul refers to the Scriptures... He has only the Old Testament in mind. The Old Testament scriptures play a significant role in Paul's teachings. He does not view them as dead text, but as the authoritative and living word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.16 he writes, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word translated inspiration is theoneustos, T-H-E-O-P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. The first part of the word theo means God, while the second half means breathed. Scripture, therefore, is God-breathed. Paul, then, uses the Scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Messiah in Romans 1-2 to give instruction in Christian living in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, and to provide the validity of his teachings in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9, which we'll read shortly. It is difficult to determine exactly how many hundreds of times Paul quotes the Old Testament, but quotes are found throughout all his letters, except his shortest ones, Titus and Philemon. Question. Read carefully Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through to 14. Identify the passages from the Old Testament that Paul quotes from in these verses. What do his quotes tell us about how authoritative the Old Testament was? Galatians 3, beginning at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, 
Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one who hangs on a tree that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so, to finish today, do you at times find yourself thinking that one part of the Bible is more inspired than other parts? Given Paul's statement in 2 Timothy 3.16, what's the danger of going down that path? Tuesday, July 25, Reckoned as Righteous Question. Why do you think Paul first appeals to Abraham as he looks to the Scriptures to validate his Gospel message? We read that in Galatians 3.6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was a central figure in Judaism. Not only was he the father of the Jewish race, But Jews in Paul's time also looked to him as the prototype of what a true Jew should be like. Many not only believed that his defining characteristic was his obedience, but that God had declared Abraham righteous because of that obedience. After all, Abraham forsook his homeland and family, accepted circumcision, and was even willing to sacrifice his son at God's command. That's obedience. With their insistence on circumcision, Paul's opponents certainly argued along these same lines. Paul, however, turns the tables by referring to Abraham nine times in Galatians as an example of faith instead of law-keeping. Question. Consider Paul's quotation of Genesis 15.6. What does it mean when it says that Abraham's faith was counted to him for righteousness. It's quoted in Romans 4, verses 3 to 6. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And Romans chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And Romans chapter 4 verses 22 to 24. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for our sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Whereas justification was a metaphor taken from the legal world, the word counted or reckoned is a metaphor drawn from the domain of business. It can mean to credit or to place something to one's account. Not only is it used regarding Abraham in Galatians 3.6, but it occurs another 11 times in connection with the patriarch. Some Bible versions translate it as counted, reckoned or imputed. According to Paul's metaphor, what is placed into our accounts is righteousness. The question is, however, on what basis does God count us as righteous? It surely cannot be on the basis of obedience, despite what Paul's opponents claimed. No matter what they said about Abraham's obedience, Scripture says that it was because of Abraham's faith that God counted him as righteous. The Bible is clear. Abraham's obedience was not grounds for his justification. It was instead the result. He didn't do the things he did in order to be justified. He did them because he already was justified. Justification leads to obedience, not vice versa. So to finish today, dwell on what this means. That you are justified not by anything you do, but only by what Christ has done for you. Why is that such good news? How can you learn to make the truth your own? That is, to believe it applies to you personally, no matter your struggles, past and even present. Wednesday, July 26, the Gospel in the Old Testament. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Galatians 3, verse 8. Paul writes that not only was the Gospel preached to Abraham, but it was God who preached it. So it must have been the true Gospel. But when did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Paul's quotation of Genesis 12.3 indicates that he had in mind the covenant God made with Abraham when he called him in Genesis 12 verses 1 through to 3. 
Question, read those verses, Genesis 12, 1-3. What does this tell us about the nature of the covenant that God made with Abraham? Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The basis of God's covenant with Abraham centred on God's promises to him. God says to Abraham four times, I will. God's promises to Abraham are amazing because they are completely one-sided. God does all the promising. Abraham promises nothing. This is the opposite of how most people try to relate to God. We usually promise we will serve him if only he will do something for us in return. But that is legalism. God did not ask Abraham to promise anything, but to accept his promises by faith. Of course, That was no easy task, because Abraham had to learn to trust completely in God and not in himself, as we see in Genesis 22 when he took his son up Mount Moriah. The call of Abraham illustrates, therefore, the essence of the gospel, which is salvation by faith. Some mistakenly conclude that the Bible teaches two ways of salvation. They claim that in Old Testament times, salvation was based on keeping the commandments. Then, because that did not work very well, God abolished the law and made salvation possible by faith. This could not be farther from the truth. As Paul wrote in Galatians 1.7, there is only one gospel. Question. What other examples can you find in the Old Testament of salvation by faith alone? First of all, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And Psalm 32, verses 1 through to five. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through to 13. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, and drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveller came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd, to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So, to finish today, we often hear the phrase, cheap grace, yet it's a misnomer. Grace isn't cheap. It's free, at least for us. But we ruin it when we think that we can add to it by our works, or when we think we can use it as an excuse to sin. In your own experience, which one of these two ways are you more inclined to lean toward, and how can you stop? Thursday, July 27, Redeemed from a Curse. Our text for today is Galatians chapter 3, verses 9 through to 14. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, 
that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul's opponents were no doubt stunned by his bold words in Galatians 3.10. They certainly did not think themselves to be under a curse. If anything, they expected to be blessed for their obedience. Yet Paul is unequivocal in that text we've just read. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul is contrasting two completely different alternatives salvation by faith and salvation by works. The covenant blessings and the curses outlined in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 were straightforward. Those who obeyed were blessed and those who disobeyed were cursed. That means if we want to rely on obedience to the law for the acceptance with God, then the whole law needs to be kept. We do not have the liberty to pick and choose what we want to follow. We also should not assume that God is willing to overlook a few mistakes here and there. It is all or nothing. This is, of course, bad news, not only for Gentiles, but for Paul's legalistic opponents as well, because we, as it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No matter how hard we try to be good, the law can only condemn us as lawbreakers. Question. How did Christ deliver us from the curse of the law? Galatians 3.13 again. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul introduces another metaphor to explain what God has done for us in Christ in Galatians 3.13. The word redeem means to buy back. It was used to refer to the ransom price paid to release hostages or the price paid to free a slave. Because the wages of sin is death, the curse of failing to keep the law was often a death sentence. The ransom paid for our salvation was not insignificant. It cost God the life of his own son, as we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus ransomed us from the curse by becoming our sin-bearer, as you read in 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And in 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. He voluntarily took our curse upon himself and suffered in our behalf the full penalty of sin. Paul cites Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 as scriptural proof. According to Jewish custom, a person was under God's curse if, after execution, the body was hung on a tree. Jesus' death on the cross was seen as an example of this curse, as we read in Acts chapter 5 
and verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. No wonder, then, that the cross was a stumbling block for some Jews, who could not fathom the idea that the Messiah was accursed by God. But this was exactly God's plan. Yes, the Messiah bore a curse, but it was not his own. It was ours. Friday, July 28. From the book The Desire of Ages, page 753, we read, Upon Christ, as our substitute and surety, was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor, that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his Son with consternation. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now... With the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Saviour in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. And from the Great Controversy, page 129, Luther now entered boldly upon his work as a champion of the truth. His voice was heard from the pulpit in earnest, solemn warning. He set before the people the offensive character of sin, and taught them that it is impossible for man, by his own works, to lessen its guilt or evade its punishment. Nothing but repentance toward God and faith in Christ can save the sinner. The grace of Christ cannot be purchased. It is a free gift. He counselled the people not to buy indulgences, but to look in faith to a crucified Redeemer. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, even today in our own church, some still have a hard time accepting salvation by faith alone, that God's grace, through Christ, saves us apart from our works. What's behind the hesitancy of some to accept this crucial truth? And two... Paul spoke very strongly about the theological error of salvation by works. What does that tell us about the importance of good theology? Why should we as a church stand up forcefully, if need be, when error is being taught among us? So, to summarise this week's lesson, from start to finish in the Christian life, the basis of our salvation is faith in Christ alone. It was because of Abraham's faith in God's promises that he was counted as righteous. And that same gift of righteousness is available for anyone today who shares Abraham's faith. 
The only reason we are not condemned for our mistakes is that Jesus paid the price for our sins by dying in our place. Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled David's Amazing Discovery, Part 2. One couple, the Sirkars, were members of the same church that David and Swana had attended. They too were excited about the truths they discovered. We never knew such things were in the Bible, they said. One of the things they learned was that God could be approached in personal prayer without the help of a priest or a prayer book. This news was thrilling to them, for they had long wished to speak directly to God. One night the Sirkars were awakened by the cries of their thirteen-year-old daughter. She had terrible pain in her chest that wouldn't go away. Her groans and cries made the worried parents wonder if she was dying. "'What shall we do?' Mrs. Sirkar worried. "'There's no way for us to get medical help now, and by morning she may be dead.' We can pray for her, her husband suggested. We've learned that we don't need the priest. We'll just tell Jesus about this and ask him to heal her. The couple knelt beside the sick girl's bed and cried out to God to save their daughter. Tears ran down their cheeks as they begged him to touch their precious girl. Suddenly they realised that their daughter had stopped groaning. By the time they said Amen, she was asleep. Her parents were convinced that God had led them to the Bible studies at David Pan's house. They continued to attend and were among the first group baptised. In a nearby village, a man named Victor and his wife were praying for someone to come and help them understand the Bible. One day, someone invited the couple to attend the Bible studies in David and Swarna's home. Victor and his wife were sure that God had sent this visitor in answer to their prayer. The next Saturday, they went to the meeting in David's home. Amazing, Victor commented as he listened to the preaching. I'm finding answers to Bible questions that I've struggled with for years. I'm so happy. The message spread rapidly among the villagers around David and Swarna's home. People came knocking on their door, asking them to come and teach what they had learned. Some years ago, David and Swarner attended a Global Mission Pioneer training class and became one of 20 Global Mission Pioneer teams that were sent out to towns and villages with the Gospel. As a result of their work, and those of other Global Mission Pioneers, thousands of people have come to know the truth as it is in Jesus and have been baptised. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.